Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about the wonderful world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including car sales grow in a topsy-turvy market, what it costs to just have your car sitting in the driveway, Australia's hydrogen ute, your own personal curbside EV charging equipment and an electric Mustang of sorts claim some Guinness records. And in feature interviews, Subaru is teasing us about the facts and features of their newest BRZ sports car. We talk to their managing director. Toyota have launched a new big Land Cruiser. Alan Zervis gives us the latest. And Brian Smith and I discuss how a quest for more parking led to the Florida apartment catastrophe. There's always more information and longer interviews at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. We even describe the times each item appears so you can go straight to that segment. Or of course there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. Enough of this, let's get going with the news. Car sales figures for August showed good growth compared to the troubled 2020 numbers. Toyota had a great month and in second place Mazda have year-to-date sales well above the industry average. Hyundai, Ford and Kia are in a very close fight for third spot. The volatility with lockdowns and difficulties in supply is typified by sports car sales. There are 47 different sports cars listed in the VFAX figures although a few are on the way out. The Ford Mustang is the big winner with 28% of sales and 52% of the segment below $80,000, that's year to date. The Mercedes C-Class and the BMW 4 Series coupes and convertibles hold the next two positions. Subaru is building up to launch their BRZ starting at $40,000 plus on-road costs. New model releases add a further element of fluctuation to the figures. Victoria's Motoring Club, the RACV, have published their annual Vehicle Operating Cost Survey based on vehicles travelling 15,000 kilometres a year. The cheapest car they analysed was the MG3 Core, which costs about $630 a month. The most expensive was the Nissan Patrol V8 at over $2,300 a month. In terms of daily costs, the Kia Picanto, very similar to the MG3, costs nearly $22 a day, while the Toyota Land Cruiser 70 Series, the second most expensive car tested, costs over $67 a day. But the real story is in the split between fixed costs, depreciation, loan, interest, rego and servicing, versus the operating costs, fuel and tyres. A base model Corolla, for example, costs $3.65 a day to operate. But the fixed cost, just to have it sitting in the driveway, is over $24 a day. A number of major companies have continued to research and develop powering electric vehicles by a hydrogen fuel cell. An Australian startup, H2X, is banking on hydrogen as a significant source of power for transport. The Warrego Ute is their first vehicle with a view to having a fleet including more light cars through to agricultural vehicles. The Warrego will come in three option levels and has a 500km driving range and a quick refuelling time of three to five minutes. The company says it has 200 orders worth $50 million. 
which have come from several significant energy companies and a number of private buyers in Australia and abroad, including the Netherlands, Germany and Malaysia. To isolate hydrogen, typically from water molecules, takes a lot of energy. That could come from renewable resources and does not produce the toxic impacts currently associated with manufacturing batteries. There's no indication of costs at this stage. One of the significant stumbling blocks for some people to take up electric vehicles is a lack of off-street parking at your home location where you can secure the charging apparatus. Now, a Melbourne company, Curb Charge, have a patent pending on an individualised curbside EV charging outlet that is supplied from your home's electricity supply. According to a report in the Driven newsletter, a dedicated charging cable runs under the footpath in a conduit from a pop-up charging outlet back to the house where the electric vehicle supply equipment sits. The lead inside the curb charge is only electrically live when the car is charging and the curb charge box is also designed to be floodproof. Port Phillip Council in Inner Melbourne is said to have approved trials of the unit. Curb charge is only for personal use by the residents of the house. The newest electric car from Ford, the Mustang Mach-E, has become a triple Guinness World Records holder, adding records for shortest charging time and fewest charge stops to its existing record for lowest energy consumption. Despite using the Mustang nameplate, this is not an electric version of the world-renowned two-door sports car. The Mustang Mach-E is a five-door crossover SUV, it first appeared in November 2019 and went onto the market in the US in December 2020. The car won the North American SUV of the Year award. The record-breaking journey was from the northernmost point of Scotland to the southern tip of England. The trip of over 1,300 kilometres required two main charging stops. While the results were 30% better than its official range, Ford is striving to break the image that the public thinks a typical electric car has a range of about 240 kilometres. And that has been the news. Subaru has firmed in on the public launch of their latest BRZ sports car. They've shown the press and special communications will be happening, particularly with those who registered an interest. You will be able to have a test drive in December and it will go on the general market in January next year. Now, Blair Reed is the general manager of Subaru Australia, who came to the position about a year ago with a solid experience with Subaru and other parts of the industry. He has a degree in management, strategy, and marketing, as well as completing leadership studies from the Mount Eliza Business School. He joins us now. G'day, Blair. Thank you, David. Thank you for that introduction. There's one qualification that must have helped you get the job as well. What was the poster you had on your bedroom wall when you were a young lad? I've actually still got it here if, you, if, if the camera works, if you'd like to set. This is, I wasn't young, young when I had this one, but it's probably quite fitting. So for any Subaru fans out there will know who that is. And being a good, good Kiwi lad, possum born, a great Kiwi icon and, and sportsman, um, you either had posters of the All Blacks or posters of Possum Born on your bedroom when you were a young fella in New Zealand. So uh, he was my inspiration. Well, you have considerable experiences in rally, mainly as a navigator, including a long-term partnership with Tony Gosling, a well-known New Zealand rally driver. Your last event was not that long ago. 
Yeah, pre-COVID, it's something that hopefully one day we'll get back to doing. Um, I, I, very much an amateur compared to, to some of the names we were, were touching on there before. A little bit of a pastime of, of sitting in the co-driver's seat and, and enjoying some of the scenery around the countryside. Your brother is a good navigator. He co-drove with Molly Taylor here in Australia. Yeah, he's a lot more famous than, than me. So my, my brother, and he's, he's done some fantastic things in rallying and, uh, you can say it run, runs in the veins in the family. So, uh, yeah, he's done, he's done some great stuff and great that he had that, he's had that partnership with Molly and they do some great rallying together. Talking about the BRZ, a low slung sports car, your sales are not spectacular, but how much of a solid performer has it been for you? Been a real consistent performer for, for the brand. And, and yes, it's on the lower end of, of the spectrum in terms of volume, but it's, it's significant volume nonetheless. And BRZ's got a real special place for the brand in that, that it allows another outlet and another, another variant in the range where people can experience what Subaru is renowned for and its engineering in a different, in a different format of car. And we've been really, really impressed in the last two years with the way the outgoing generation, if we call it that, has performed that there's been a real consistent demand and a real loyal following with with, with customers, which has been great to see. And as long as customers are supporting those types of models, we'll keep trying to supply customers with the types of vehicles they're after. Keep trying to supply is an interesting expression we'll come to. The sports car market sales have been all over the place for some other models on the market, some other brands. Is that about supply? Is that really making it hard in the market? Not so much for sports cars with the lower volume. The two real factors that, that drive the sports car market are new model launches, whenever there's a model that comes along. And, and BRZ and the 86 uh, being, being joint models, when they were first launched, they really breathed life back into the sports car segment. It was dropping away. It had been throughout the early 2000s. And when they were launched, they breathed new life, new interest back into into that segment with with a, an affordable sports car option. And and what you see, what you've seen over the last decade is when there's new product comes along from different brands in those segments, you see a real spike in volume. So that's one big factor. The other big factor we see is the social environment. And and you know if we reflect on the challenges that all Australians are going through at the moment with with, with COVID, we're all looking for a, for a little bit of outlet, for a bit of fun. And and then that's where you see purchases turn to those types of vehicles where people are looking for something for for a bit for a bit of fun and 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 something to add to to their weekends and you see those sort of more fringe purchases pick up that where do we need the sports car or do I want the sports car? The 86 Toyota with badge engineering, although started with a huge bang, but yours has remained more stable, I think, in terms of the volume. Is that a reflection on the loyalty and the almost family type aspect of Subaru? Yeah, I think Subaru's always had had strong a strong loyal following and a strong customer base, and and we've worked really hard at that over many many decades, and and I think that definitely plays a plays a part. We're really focused on our positioning with that model, and 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 different different brands have different approaches to model life cycle and and, and supply. So, but from our perspective, it's been very much about. Keep it keeping that performance aspect of the brand alive and engaging with the loyal owners and enthusiasts, and, and we've seen good demand as a result of that. You mentioned social media, and those words you just used then is really talking about marketing as being more than just a big splash or the occasional big splash. Now, your marketing uh, head of marketing, Amanda Adlini, uh, she talked about, and when we were talking about the BRZ, of the, generating that 
night before Christmas feeling. How much do you have to manage expectations to make it exciting and to some degree overcome the pain of delay? It's um, a real big challenge. And, in, you know, the, in, in the, the environment we live in now where everything is so accessible from social media, trying to, you know, keep, keep the, the presence under wraps, so to speak, is a real challenge. You know, global press and global pickup can, can you know, stumble the best, the best laid plans and imagery of cars and new models can be seen well in advance. So, so trying to harness that but give good, consistent messaging to your customers so they know what's coming from the brand. You talk about buying online and you can do that, but you're not trying to make too much of a distinction with that process, are you? You're trying to keep the link to the dealership and, and in essence, keep the link strongly to the customer, not just a quick click-and-go type of transaction. 100%, David, and, and, and our philosophy at Subaru was, has been and always will be is about how to make it easy for customers to transact with the brand and with our dealerships, and our dealer network around Australia is such a critical part of that. You touched on before the strengths of relationships with, with the brand and, and customer retention. Our dealer network is the absolute heartbeat of that. I mean, everybody has the same information in the process, and that, and that it's a nice, aligned, streamlined process for the customer. The new model has more power? Correct, more power for the new BRZ, which is uh, down to the increase in engine size. So we go from a 2-litre to 2.4-litre engine with the new BRZ, and that's a great new addition for uh, for customers in the new model. It's not turbocharged, but your own experience in rallying has been strongly linked with historic rally cars. In 2017, you and Tony won the Historic Rally Challenge after victory at Rally New Zealand. Not the most blisteringly powerful cars, but they are the ones you really have to drive well. Is there a similarity there with the BRZ and, and a good sports car? Yeah, absolutely. That there's there's nothing quite like the feeling of a, a well powered, powered enough rear wheel drive, a light, great handling sports car. And that's what BRZ really, really delivers for for, for customers. You spoke of the BRZ as having analog driving experience. What did you mean by that? Analog, a great expression, and it's it's really about that feeling the driver gets through the steering wheel and the inputs you're making that you're determining what the car's doing and the car's giving you that feedback, almost to coin another expression of it fits like a glove. And when you're in a BRZ, the analog driving expression is that you can feel the movement the car's making and you're you're absolutely in control of that. And you know that's that's what puts a smile on people's faces. In 2016, there was the stadium cars, Otago Classic Rally. You came third. The winner was the former WRC competitor, Marco Martin. And they described his driving as inch perfect. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about in terms of having a car? It doesn't have to have huge power that can often visually overcome the fact that perhaps you're not driving it well. Yeah, correct, David. And, you know, power gets you down the straights, but handling is what gets you around the corners. And and your description there of Inch Perfect is when we talk with the engineers from Japan who have, who have put many, many years into to, to developing the BRZ, this is the type of stuff they talk about and what they were trying to achieve. I interviewed David Rowley just before he left and asked him how his children liked the idea of him working for Subaru. You have three young ones, I think. Are they happy to see Dad bring home a BRZ or a WRX? 
they uh, they absolutely love it. So uh, um, it's a re- really funny to watch the expressions and, and the excitement. And, uh, you know, it, it almost takes me back to where we started about that, you know, the, the young boy with the poster on his wall. I can I sort of get a glimpse of myself 30 years ago. <laughs> all right, Blair, that's been lovely to talk to you. I thank you very much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you, David. And that was Blair Reed, the General Manager for Subaru Australia. The full interview can be heard at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. When it comes to big, luxurious seven-seat SUVs, Genesis wasn't a name that buyers thought of usually. But in a short space of time, the GV80 has cast itself a niche following. It's not surprising as it looks good from almost all angles with its long bonnet and large grille, as well as the coupe-style back. Sit inside and you are impressed by the level of comfort, luxury and safety features that are included, especially with the optional luxury pack. The heated and cooled front seats are unbelievably comfortable with the diamond-stitched quilted leather. There's a huge middle screen for all the infotainment and connectivity controls, as well as a large display in front of the driver and heads-up display as well. It's spacious for five people and the two extra seats are not bad for shorter trips. It's also got a large size boot area. The diesel engine is quiet, smooth, economical and powerful enough. Safety features like the lane assist and a decent reverse camera ensure your family is being well looked after. Priced from a bit over $123,000, it's a little expensive, but you get a lot for your money and great value compared to similar European SUVs. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Back in the 50s, the Teeks was working on the snowy mountain schemes and the vehicle of choice tended to be the Land Rover, but they brought in some Japanese products, the Land Cruiser. Well, it has evolved enormously over the years and our good friend Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys has been looking at the latest version of the big model to come out. G'day, Alan. How are you, David? I'm very well, thank you. Wondering about how this particular vehicle comes onto the market. What's it trying to say? Look, I think it's trying to say I can go anywhere. And I think that's why the top model, the Sahara, which is uh, the one we normally get, is so versatile. It is absolutely astonishing. And, of course, this is the Land Cruiser 200 series, And coming out in the next few months is the Land Cruiser 300, so a brand new one. What's the difference between 200 and 300? Is it bigger or or what? Well, it'll be a brand new car, of course, but it looks basically the same. I think they're not messing with the formula too much. Uh, It'll be a little bit more capable. One of the best features about this car is the crawl and the the skid steer, the steer assist. Uh, So it can steer almost 90 degrees, almost in its own length, which is astonishing. Sorry, how does it do that? It locks the inner back wheel. So you turn on all the crawl features and activate the skid control, and then it goes forward itself under its own steam without you touching the brakes or the accelerator and creeps forward and gradually as you steer, it'll lock that back wheel and make a skid steer turn. It just just stops moving, drags along the ground. It's like a handbrake turn. Exactly, but only on one wheel. Oh, isn't that clever? It is extremely clever. Now, it's got a four and a half litre V8, which is a diesel, turbo diesel V8. Not too bad on economy either. Have you got a figure? It's a 200 kilowatt, 650 newton metre engine. Now, their official figure is uh, 9.5 litres per 100 kilometres combined. And I was managing to get a combined figure of around 10, which I thought was good for a car that weighs uh, 2,740 kilos. 
You are moving a block of flats. A very small block of flats. And when you're driving it, it, sound, it feels like you're driving it from, uh, you know, the second or third floor. But that's okay by me. <laughs> Is it quiet? Has it got a good ambience inside? It does look at it. The, the ambience feels old fashioned, but it's an old fashioned gentleman's lounge. So there's a touch of, of fake wood grain and, you know, the carpets are covered by rubber mats. But nonetheless, the, the seats are leather. They're extremely comfortable. It really does feel like you could cross a continent really comfortably. They imported the Land Cruisers to start with as rugged work vehicles at a competitive price. What's this one worth? Well, it started at 123590 but uh, that took it to 132000 on the road. And there was a, a kind of a celebration final hurrah model that was around 132000 plus on roads. So it's not exactly cheap, but of course, if you do want a slightly cheaper de-featured model, there is the 70 series, which really is just the original Land Rover kind of revisited. They use the word Land Cruiser with Prados as well now, but this is the genuine big top-of-the-scale model. Would that be a way to describe it? Absolutely right. It really does. The Sahara is the top of the line, but I think even the bottom of the Land Cruiser 200s still feels relatively luxurious. Old-fashioned, as I said, but very, very well-made, very well put together. Got all the latest infotainment, and in fact, this even has rear infotainment screens for the kids when you go on your road trip. I wonder if that's one of the things that will be fashionable at the moment, but will be replaced when, well, by doing now, every kid carries a laptop or an iPad. Well, I think one of the comments I made in my review was that it is less convenient than actually having an iPad, <laughs> because you've got to use either an HDMI port or a DVD to get your content onto the screens. It's a little bit like navigation systems now. What you bring into the car might be more important or more useful to you than what the car has as standard equipment. Absolutely right. Because remember that this car will go on for, let's say, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. And considering when it's halfway or at the end of its life, the technology that's put into it now will be even more outdated. So, yeah, whatever you bring into it is what is the current stuff, and I think that that's going to be more useful. An interesting trend. Alan, thanks for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Alan Zervis from agaycarboys.com giving his opinion and a thoughtful approach to the new Toyota Land Cruiser. You're listening to Overdrive. Kia's Nero comes in three versions, an all-electric, a hybrid, and the car I drove this week, the plug-in hybrid electric. The PHEV, pronounced FEV, is probably the best mix as you can drive every day on all-electric power if you don't go too far. And if that runs out, you have the backup of the hybrid petrol power. It's good for about 50Ks a day, and then you go home and plug it into charge for tomorrow. Normally when I drive around town, I do about 45Ks a day, so I've driven it all week and still have about 600Ks to empty with petrol. The shape and size is good, plenty of room, like a mix between a hatch and a small SUV. It's a breeze to park, yet has enough room in the boot for everything I need. The seats are really comfortable, the instruments are clear and easy to read as well. I like the large central tablet for the infotainment connectivity, and hooking up the iPhone is simple. The other thing I like about the Nero is it's packed with the latest safety features and has a 5-star rating. The Kia Nero Fev is priced from around $50,500 plus the usual costs. Compared to other similar vehicles, it's relatively good value. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Well, it's not so much a quirky story, but perhaps a sad reflection of how the car can dominate a culture. We're talking about the collapse of a Floridor residential building back in June of this year, 2021. To talk about that, we have our transport expert on the line, Brian Smith. Go, Brian. Hello, David. Now, this is the 12-storey beachfront condominium in the Miami suburb of Surfside, obviously in Florida. It's known as the Champlain Towers South. That was the one that collapsed and tragically 98 people died. Four were rescued. One of those was uh, included, eventually died. So only three really got out. And they have now, of course, pulled it down and the mirror image building beside it as well, which is all part of the complex. Now, there were some original ideas, Brian, that complaints have been sent in when they were building nearby and they were worried about the building being close. But a recent report has said that the problem had something to do with an attempt for transport. Well, that's right, David. So um, initially it appeared that parts of the the structure had corroded by the sea uh, and then for a long time they'd been uh, recognised that there were some problems with the building and uh, repair of those was going to be expensive and kept being put off. Well, after it collapsed, engineers started investigating and they found that a, a major cause of the collapse was some key columns had been resized and made smaller when this building was built in the 70s. And of course, in the 70s, the car was king. And this was the reason that they adjusted the columns in order to fit more car parking in. And so this was that additional car parking that effectively doomed the building. We believe in our cars. I mean, down there too, most of them would be Cadillacs, wouldn't they? Yes, yeah. And not only necessarily more spaces, but also a bit more room to be able to get in. The size of the vehicles and our passion for having parking seems to have overrun our sense of safety. Well, certainly if you're adjusting structural elements of the building uh, in order to accommodate something like parking, uh, I've seen lots and lots of examples where car parking has has sort of dominated buildings. And and in particular, I remember in North Sydney, you'd often have buildings where uh, the underground car parking was designed and, and marked out for a certain number of car spaces, uh, you know, as per the approval, but, you know, they would jam many, many more in there. So, uh, so they right. would design it with very wide aisles and very wide parking bays and, of course, park, you know, three cars to two bays. And, and uh, whilst not remarking inside, they would be deliberately designing it to uh, sort of underestimate the number of cars that would be generated by the development. Because councils use parking limitations by number as a policy move to discourage excessive driving to those particular inner city type areas, don't they? Yes. So that you know they would calculate the number of car parking spaces to be provided using different codes, and and uh, you know certainly restrict it very much in places like North Sydney, but. Uh, so, so they may be trying to, to limit the amount of car parking and if your plan showed you met that requirement and didn't exceed it, then you could get it approved. But of course, you know, you design it so that you can fit a whole lot more cars in, 30 or 40 or 50% more uh, than the the, the, vehicle, the building is designed for. And of course, that generates, that goes against the whole point of limiting the parking to, to limit the traffic that's generated by the building. 
design of parking areas is quite an art. I knew, uh, sadly passed away now, a transport traffic engineer who was an absolute wizard at it, and he reckons that for the same area, if it was better designed, he could get more cars in or get the same number of cars in but without having to build quite as big a space. It is an art, isn't it? It is, David, and I recall seeing many, many uh, informal car parks, you know, uh, particularly uh, park and ride lots that, uh, you know, might uh, develop in, in outer areas on, on paddocks, you know, and people start parking. It's not field or line marked at all. And so um, you would have a functional car park with a certain number of cars in it. And when the time came to formalise it, to make it sort of work with the code and have the appropriate dimensions of spaces and of aisles, you could never fit the same number of cars back in yeah. uh, because people, I think, would, would tolerate it in an informal way, uh, a whole lot less sort of manoeuvring and space than uh, the, the guidelines required. Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That's Brian Smith, who is an expert in uh, traffic engineering and transport planning, talking there about car parking spaces, which have been a major part of the culture and uh, ebbing and flowing in our passion towards them. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Blair Reed, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information and extended features, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's always our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thank you.